and I learned a new term about two months ago. Um, one of my daughters had a pair, a pair of Sperry's on with white socks. And my other daughter said to her, oh, this is Allison, my daughter, saying it to Gretchen. Gretchen, that's social suicide. You don't wear white socks with Sperry's. Did anybody, ever, did anybody know that? Was that, anybody, is that written down anywhere? Yeah, for, for if you're a freshman in high school, it is. So my daughter said, oh, no, Dad, that's social suicide. You don't wear white socks with Sperry's. I didn't know that. I don't do that, but my college-age daughter apparently didn't care. So I asked my freshman daughter yesterday, tell me some other social suicides. She said, well, you don't wear denim with denim. You don't wear Uggs with shorts, which I would never do. <laughs> and, uh, oh, she had a list of things. But, you know, there's all these social suicides that, you know, if you were in middle school, when you were in grade school, when you're in high school, and let's be honest, when you're 51 years old or older than that or even a few years younger... There's things we don't want to do because we think it could lead to social suicide. Like, ooh, we don't want people to think negatively of us. Like, we're not in. We're not hip, cool, or whatever. And so we know what that feels like in middle school or high school or college and even as adults. So, so this, I found this definition. It's committing an act or acts that alienate you from your desired social scene or social circle. You know, do things like that, and we've all have those stories from high school and junior high years where we've done things and felt like it just kind of, we oh, just died inside. But here's a question I want to ask that kind of got me thinking about this, and that's this. Go to the next slide. Does following Jesus today lead to social suicide? Are there times where following Jesus, obeying Jesus, being bold in the spirit of Jesus leads you to a situation where you have to decide whether you're willing to sacrifice a certain social standing a certain social opinion of you because you're choosing to follow Jesus. And I think I, you know what the answer to the question is. Of course it does at times. And what do you do in those situations where everything around you says, well, just go with the flow. Just do it that way. Not a big deal. But something deep inside of you says, no, I think Jesus would want me to do this or not do that or do this instead. And what do you do? And how do you become the kind of person who frankly stops caring about what other people think about you? Because if you live your life, if I live my life out of an opinion survey kind of mode, what do people think about me? What do people think about me? I will guarantee you, you will not, I will not be the kind of alive, awakened, free follower of Jesus that you all hunger to be and I hunger to be. And so how do you live a life that way? So we've been, the last few weeks we've been talking, looking in the book of Daniel and uh, put that next slide up there. And I've just called it, it's uh, stretching far, far before, uh, beyond comfort. Daniel is in the Old Testament. Daniel is one of the prophets of the Old Testament. Um, there's the last part of the Old Testament books are called the prophetic books. Uh, there's a bunch of books called the minor prophets, Nahum, Habakkuk, Haggai. They're only called minor because they were smaller books. Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, there's four or five what are called the major prophets. They're longer books toward the end of the Old Testament. So Daniel was written by Daniel. Um, and the map up there I have is of the Middle East. And here's where kind of gets set the scene. The yellow is modern-day kind of boundaries. you got modern-day countries. But this, this event, these events took place 2,600 years ago. Um, Jerusalem is still where it is in the green dot. Babylon was kind of the world power then. King Nebuchadnezzar, 
went to Jerusalem, besieged Jerusalem, basically smashed it to the ground, smashed and burned it to the ground. As was the practice then, they would take the best and the brightest of the population they just conquered and bring them back to their homeland. So 900 miles away, by foot, they go to Babylon. And there's Daniel and a lot of his friends and even family members are stuck in a culture they never wanted to be in. Their homeland is crushed, destroyed. The hopes of going home are probably slim to none. And they're stuck in this new world and uh, trying to figure out what does it mean to follow God in a culture that doesn't do that. Can anybody relate to what Daniel may have been relating to? What does it mean? How do you follow God in a culture that says everything else but that? So Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were some of the young men, probably no older, they, we, we don't know for sure, but no older probably than in their low 20s or early t- late teens. They were some of the ones chosen to be part of this royal training program to become advisors to the king and part of the royal wisdom kind of pool. Because again, they would take the best of the brightest, try to kind of enculturate them to make them just like them. All right? You live in a culture, the culture's trying to make you just like them. So you can serve their interests and no longer serve the God of your own interests. So that's the setting here. And a few weeks ago, we talked about some situations with Daniel and... uh, the king and some dreams, but this week we're going to talk about Daniel chapter 3, and uh, this may be a story if you grew up in a church, and if you didn't grow up in a church, you still may know this story. It's uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar builds this large idol, 90 feet tall, we're going to read about it in a second. He demanded everybody should bow to it, and if you don't, you get executed. Nebuchadnezzar had like an ego issue, all right? So here we go, Let me just, I'm just going to start reading, just listen along, and I... You know, I found my best uh, Sunday school picture. Go back to the, the picture there, uh, Tim. Yeah, right there. Just leave it there for a while. And just, follow, just listen and uh, kind of... One rule here I'll say is no flash forwards. You know how the story ends, but they didn't. So just, lis- just listen along as it goes and put yourself in this situation. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide and set it upon the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then he sent messages to the high officials, officers, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the officials that come to the dedication of the statue he had set up. So all these officials came and stood before the king, the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald shouted out, people of all races and nations and languages, listen to the king's command. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and other musical instruments, bow to the ground. To worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. Anyone who refuses to obey will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. This is not just social suicide. This is like you're putting your life on the line. Because you're not doing what everybody else is doing. So at the sound of the musical instruments, all the people, whatever their race or nation or language, bow to the ground and worship the gold statue the King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. But some of the astrologers went to the king and informed on the Jews, and they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, Long live the king. You issued a decree requiring all the people to bow down and worship the gold statue when they hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the the harp, the pipes, and other musical instruments. That decree also states that those who refuse to obey must be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom you have put in charge of the province of Babylon, so now you see leave even an envy here, these other advisors. Hey, you put these guys in charge, these Jews, and they pay no attention to you, your majesty. They refuse to serve your gods and do not worship the gold statue you've set up. 
So right away, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when the king issues this decree and this instrument sounds supposed to about it, they don't. Now again, no flash forward. They had no idea what was going to happen. They knew King Nebuchadnezzar was a little bit nutty and had often fits of rage, and they knew he was capable and most likely to do what he said he would do, and is that if you don't bow down, you die. We don't know about all the other Jews that may have been there, but these three guys didn't bow down. Now, I would imagine, you can't really see this picture, but there's a guy next to one, I'm kind of grabbing one of his arms. Maybe it was one of their buddy Jews saying, come on, come on, come on, don't make a big deal about this. Don't make a big deal about this. Just bow down. You know, in your spirit, you don't have to bow down, but just get it over with. Don't cause trouble. Don't rock the boat. Maybe you've been in that situation. Yeah, well, I I probably shouldn't do it, but I don't really want to stick out. And God knows my heart, so I'll go ahead and do this anyway, even though I I don't think it's what God would want me to do, but I'll do it. So you kind of wonder, what were the other... Jewish young men who may have been bowing down thinking. But that's not the focus of the story. The focus is there's three guys that didn't. And what were they thinking? Because this was, this was way, 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 way more than wearing white socks and fairies. Because the penalty was not just social alienation. It was going to be death. Then King Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage and ordered that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought before him. When they were brought in, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue I've set up? I'll give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I've made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments. You know, we know Nebuchadnezzar probably knew these guys. He had some kind of relationship. So I'll give you another chance. It must have been a misunderstanding. But if you refuse this time, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue from my power? And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego respond this way. Go to the next slide. King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need... Actually, read this quote with me all out loud. King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, read that phrase again, but even if he does not, one more time, but even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of the gold you have set up. My heroes, would would you love to have that kind of courage and boldness? Even if God doesn't rescue us from the flames, we're not going to bow down to your gods. And before we exempt ourselves from this situation, let's talk about idols for a second. Because last I've checked, there's not too many 90-foot idols around Bloomington that are demanding we bow down when somebody plays the IU fight song or whatever. I don't know. But what is an idol? What's an idol? In the Old Testament, an idol was anything someone would give themselves to in exchange for the feelings of security, of joy, of prosperity, of meaning, of identity. Something you give yourself to so you kind of know who you are. It's not hard to think through. Sometimes my idol can be a bank account. Sometimes my idol can be uh, a career path. 
Sometimes my idol can be a certain identity. I want to fit in this group. And we don't have golden idols around back, but there's all kinds of things that are vying for us to give ourselves to for our identity and for giving us meaning in life. And, and so not, let's not exempt ourselves from this idolatrous kind of, oh, we would never do that. Let's be, we, we probably do it a whole lot more than we think. We are probably bowing down to idols, things that we think give us meaning in life because we're not sure if God may not be holding out on us, so we better get it somewhere. Whether it's from, you know, some kind of athletic world, musical world, financial world, something we got to get meaning from. Not that those things are bad, but they become bad if that becomes a source of meaning. And if your primary drive is, I just don't want to stick out. You know, I don't want to stick out. I want to kind of blend in. Um, so idols are all kinds of things. And, and, and the fear and the, and the anxiety we get, from, well, I don't want to. I don't want to stick out. I mean, I remember times, and maybe some of your parents, you know what I'm talking about. You know, you have uh, one of your kids call, gets called to go to a sleepover, and you find out that they're going to, oh, they're going to watch a movie. What movie are they going to watch? Oh, yeah, we don't want you watching that movie. Oh, come on, Dad. Come on, Mom. You know. And, and it's not because my wife and I, or some of you parents, we're not, not because you're a prude. It's because there's just something that's unsettling about that. And so we have to put our, feels like, our children in a situation where they have to say to their friends, my mom and dad won't let me watch that movie, you know. But so that's a small example. But again, we're, those of us who are adults, there's all kinds of things that we can choose to do or not do because we want to blend in or not blend in. And it's not, again, it's not about being prudish or legalistic or things like that, but it's doing what we know is we're doing it because we know the Spirit of Jesus wants to do, wants us to, not because we have this deep, deep desire to fit in to the social scene that we think will give us value. That's an idolatry, right? If, you, if, if, if you're motivated by fitting into the right social scene because that gives you meaning, value, and identity, that's an idol. So that's exactly what's going on here. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, probably 19-year-old young men, who are like, you know, we're not, we're not giving into that. We got more inside of us than that. Right? So now, here's, here's what happens next. Go to the next slide. We'll let us settle up the rest. Go. Uh, yeah, forgot. Here's one thing, one principle. Worshiping, worshiping an idol can advance your career or social status. That's a fact. There are certain things, if you decide you will worship other idols, there are ways which will, it will clearly advance your career or social status. And if you choose to go along with the flow, even though there's times where you know the Spirit of God is saying, don't go that way, go this way, it will advance your career or your social status. And that's not saying every time you advance, it's because you've bowed down to an idol. It's not saying that. But it's just saying, you know, you clearly know there are times, well, well, if I just do it that way, you know, God will kind of overlook that. It helps me kind of get one more step on the ladder. Helps me get into that group I've wanted to get. Helps me date that guy or that girl I've wanted to date. Helps me kind of move up the ladder financially. So worshiping an idol can advance your career or social status. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego chose not to do that. All right? Now, here's how the story finished. Now, go to the next slide. So King Nebuchadnezzar gets so furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face became distorted with rage. This guy has anger management issues, right? He commanded the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual. Then he ordered some of the strongest men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. 
Now, now where are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in terms of kind of their boldness? They still don't know what's going to happen. So they tied them up and threw them into the furnace, fully dressed in their pants, turbans, robes, and other garments. And because the king in his anger had demanded such a hot fire in the furnace, the flames killed the soldiers as they threw the men in. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, securely tied, fell into the roaring flames. But suddenly, Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and explained to, exclaimed to his advisors, Didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Well, yes, your majesty, we certainly did. Look, King Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men unbound, walking around in the fire unharmed, and the fourth looks like a god. We don't know. Some people wonder if that may have been uh, an angel. We don't know if it might have been, some people think it might have been an Old Testament visitation of Jesus. We don't know, but it was obviously something supernatural. There was a supernatural uh, presence with those three men in this fire. Then Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stepped out of the fire. Then the high officers, officials, governors, and advisors crowded around them and saw the fire had not touched them. Not a hair on their heads was singed, and their clothing was not scorched. They didn't even smell of smoke. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted in him. They defied the king's command and were willing to die rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make this decree. If any people, wherever their race or nation or language, speak a word against this god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they'll be torn limb from limb. I mean, this guy's got, he's got anger all over the place. Now, if you don't worship this god, we're going to tear you limb from limb. And their houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. There is no other god who can rescue like this. But again, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they didn't know that was going to happen. They said, even if he doesn't. I mean, how many times throughout the history have men and women who followed Jesus been killed because they followed Jesus? And they would still say, even if he doesn't, we're still going to worship him only. It doesn't mean God failed them. It means his rescue took a whole different form. But in this case, he rescued them physically. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to even higher position in the province of Babylon. Go to the next slide here. This is a challenge. What, what would it be like for you or me to ask God for this Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego kind of boldness? And I mean even in simple ways. I, like I said, I can't imagine any of us being asked to bow down to a 90-foot idol. But how many times, this is one of my things that I realized early, you know, years ago, and it's still a challenge for me. How many times in a conversation you have with somebody who's not a, maybe not a believer, not a churchgoer, and they ask you about, somehow the conversation goes to your spiritual life, and it's really easy to talk to them about, well, my religion or my faith or my church or even God. But you say the name Jesus, it changes the conversation. And for some reason, that's hard for us. To, well, I'm a follower of Jesus. It's much easier to say, well, I go to church, and that's because I go to church, I don't do those kind of things or whatever. But if you say, no, I follow Jesus, I guarantee you, and you, some of you know what I'm talking about, you say that word, the conversation changes. Because that, talking about God, faith, religion, is somewhat socially acceptable. Talking about Jesus, because the Bible tells us it's true, becomes offensive. And it stirs things up a bit. Now, I'm not saying you should walk around your office or your workplace saying, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. 
But when it fits in the conversation and you sense that, no, I, I am doing this because I think Jesus wants me to. You can say that without being a jerk. You can say that without being a religious fanatic. They may think you're a fanatic. You don't have to say it with that tone. You don't have to say, Jesus. You can just say, no, I just, somebody might say, hey, tell me, you know, you, you've talked about your marriage being hard. Tell me how you guys work it through. Well, we just, we trust Jesus to help us kind of work through this stuff. And they're like, Jesus? Where the, yeah. We, or, hey, you guys give how much money to your church? Well, we just, it's something we feel like Jesus asks us to do, so we're going to trust Jesus with that. Or we're going to trust Jesus with our kids. Yeah, there comes, but again, I'm not saying to put Jesus, the Jesus stamp on all your sentences. But it's amazing how when you, say, when you open up that in your kind of conversation in a natural way, how something starts to flow out of you and the conversation changes and it becomes a little more focused. So what would it be like if a whole church of people had that kind of boldness? So when the culture around you, friends, whatever, say, do this, and you say, no, I think Jesus wants to do this. Because one of the things, go to the next slide, one of the things that Jesus said in Matthew 10, he was, he was giving the disciples and giving us kind of a strong lesson and making us realize, you know, following Jesus is not like, it's not like entry into Hallmark world. Because he says, don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They can't touch your soul. And he was telling them, there are going to be people who will not like what you do because of who you say you follow. Don't be afraid of them. Don't let the fear of the opinions of others dictate how you respond in situations, social or other. Because they, they can kill your body, they can't touch your soul. Now again, we're Americans, we live in a country where persecution, at least that physical persecution, seems distant. But who knows, and I'm not trying to be like some naysayer, but the words of Jesus, don't be afraid of those wanting, they can't touch your soul, they can't. And there's men and women throughout history who have been killed because of their faith in Jesus who would attest to that fact. You can't touch your soul. And then he says that, and then just months or, you know, a few years later, go to the next slide, and then book of Acts, you know, they, they, they begin healing people and proclaiming the name of Jesus. And they're saying, you know, we're, we're doing this in the name of Jesus. And the persecution of the book of Acts was not because they were healing people or seeing miracles happen, or even talking about God, the persecution was because they told them, stop using that name. It wasn't because what they were doing, it was the name in which they were doing it. And, and they were, uh, Peter and John were arrested, they were threatened, they came back and told the rest of the church, and they threatened us, we shouldn't do this anymore. And they prayed, and this was part of their prayer, I love this. They said, and now Lord, hear their threats and give us your servants great boldness to talk about Jesus, is what they said. And God, would you give us great boldness and would you stretch out your hands and could we see miraculous signs and wonders? I mean, boldness, this is not like, this is not brashness. This is not, let's be jerks. This is not, let's create a situation where people will hate us and then we can say we're martyrs because we're jerks. No, this is boldness that comes from a power inside of us. It's like, no, we know who we are because we know who God made us to be and we know who Jesus is. And then, and then uh, even later in the book of Acts, leave it on this slide, even later in the book of Acts, it says they were, the, the next chapter, 
some of them get arrested again for the same thing. And they said, we told you to stop doing this. And as a matter of fact, we're not going to kill you now, but we are going to flog you. So they flogged them. And then the very next verse, for the next day they were out in the temple again preaching again. And you think, how, where do you get that kind of boldness? They were flogged. I mean, that, that's painful. And the next day they go out and do it again. Because they had, their, their fear had been kind of dissolved by this boldness that came from the Spirit of Jesus. Next slide and last slide. In the book of Hebrews, we're told that, that Jesus is described as a high priest, this high priest of ours. He understands our weaknesses. He understands the temptations we have of, yeah, I'll just go along with the flow here. He understands not wanting to have opposition. But he says, no, but since he understands we can come boldly to the throne of our gracious God, then we'll receive his mercy and we'll find grace to help us when, he, when we need it most. But this whole idea of boldness, and we can go to God for boldness, with boldness. And uh, here's what we're going to do. We, we take communion. We're going to finish with communion here. And let me explain communion, but I'm going to explain something else we're going to do with this. Because when we come to communion today, we, we do it every week at Exodus Renew here. We come to the table because we want to focus on the fact that Jesus is the source of that kind of power and boldness. So when you come up for communion day, it's let us come boldly to the throne of grace. Because we receive from Jesus, this is a symbol that we receive from Jesus, the mercy and the grace to help us when we need it most. Because my guess is no, nobody here wants to be timid. Nobody here wants to say, yeah, I just kind of want to give in to the culture. I don't want to be like, I don't want to stand. No, most of us would say, I would love to have the kind of boldness that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Peter and John. I would love to have that kind of boldness. Not jerkiness, not harshness, but boldness because I believe deep in my being about what Jesus is all about. So when you come to take communion, so here's what we're... So as we do it at Exodus, when you come on, we're going to sing. There'll be people at the aisles here. Um, we offer you the bread, and we just ask you to tear off a piece. And we, just, just, we don't dismiss our rows. You just come up. Then we'll offer you the cup, and then just ask you to dip it in the cup. After that, here's what I'm going to ask to do. Um, some, of you, some, some of you guys here have been part of these Friday morning prayer groups I've done the last couple months. And so I, I didn't tell you guys this in advance, but I'm sure you're going to be okay with this. I'm going to ask some of you guys, because we prayed in one of our prayer groups, we prayed for one another for boldness. Give your servant great boldness. I'm going to ask any of those guys who are from that Friday morning group, he'd be willing to, get over on the side over there, and I'm going to ask others of you, after you take communion, to go over there, and I'm going to ask those guys to put a hand on your shoulder and simply pray, God, would you give this servant of yours great boldness? Because you don't know when you may need more boldness, and we all want more, more boldness in our lives. So again, um, I'm going to ask those guys, you know, and my Dan and Mike Navarro and Paul Kostansky, and there's a number of you who have been a part of that Friday morning group, for you to go over there and be ready to pray for people and simply put a hand on their shoulder, ask them their name. So if their name's Mary, God, give your servant Mary great boldness. And that's it. No, no lengthy things beyond that. You got that? So everybody... I'm inviting you to go over there. We're not going to force anybody to go get prayed for, but I'm going to encourage you to. Like, why wouldn't you want more boldness, right? All right? So let's, uh, let me pray, and then we'll take communion, 
And I'm going to ask some of those guys to come up and uh, take communion first so they can get over there and pray for people. So let me pray. Uh, Jesus, we are grateful that you, 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 Jesus, and your spirit are the spirit of boldness we want. You, you become that inside of us. You, you dissolve the fear we have of being rejected by other people. You resolve the fear and the anxieties of social suicide of following you. So Jesus, um, thank you that you broke through, created a new and living way so that we can have the kind of boldness and get from you the grace and mercy we need so we can be the kind of alive and awake and free people that you said you promised we would be. And so we're grateful and we ask this all in your name. Amen. So let me ask those, some of those guys part of that Friday.